Oh, I missed that. Uh, I, I had seen bits of it, but never actually watched the whole thing. iTunes had never before. Never, never the whole thing. It just one of the many holes in my pop culture. You were not Godfathered. Yeah. Yeah, I'd seen bits. I knew the plot line, but never had watched it. And I think November iTunes had all three Godfather movies for ten dollars, so I bought it, but hadn't really watched them yet. So watched one and two, which is quite a commitment because each one's about three hours. Yeah, and they're paced pretty slow. But man, just really gripping and and really scary. You see what uh, a bad guy he becomes. And we're so used to that now. I mean, it seems like the majority of very popular shows, Mad Men. Breaking Bad is the classic I think of. Yeah, the one about drugs. And a number of others. The Godfather series is seems, if I remember correctly, one of those. It's not the first, obviously, but it, it seems to go after this idea that Let's watch a good man descend into the sins of his father, which is just a very interesting thing that that compels us, that we mm-hmm. like it. You would right. think we'd be like, ooh, wait, he was an, a man from the military. He had served in the war, and he comes back, and now he's a kingpin and uh, you know, having murders of others and that kind of a thing. Yeah, ends up murdering his own brother. Yeah. Despite his brother's actually a better parent to yeah, his son. pushing his is. wife out, all this stuff. Yeah this kind of um, vendetta model. But yeah, it makes sense because there's something about, I don't know, I'm always intrigued by how pop culture is always drawn to descents into what we would, at least in the Christian theology world, call sin. This kind of breaking up of your natural identity, the good parts of yourself and chasing the the low elements, um, the things that would corrupt you. But it just, no one stops and goes, wow, that's, that's unique. You know, he's becoming a mafioso. It's like, we're just like, oh, cool. <laughs> it's right. just a natural right. thing. Yeah, the other thing about The Godfather, though, is it's, it's like Monty Python or some of these other things where you know the quotes. It, it's it's too, like, still part of our cultural vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So you almost feel like you have watched it, even when you haven't in some places. Yes, yeah. So you liked it, though. You liked The Godfather. Oh, that was amazing. Um, just, just really gripping. And... Um the script. And also, it did remind me of Breaking Bad. It is kind of the plot line of Breaking Bad, of, of a, a descent uh, of a person. But what's interesting is you never get into his mind. Like, it never no. says why. Like, he just kind of, I assume it is his, um, sort of his loyalty to the family that he just steps in when his father gets shot in The Godfather 1. But you, you don't really know what's going on. You just know that that he is... Um, He's going to take over the family, and he just can't seem to stop. Because in, in Breaking Bad, you get that famous line at the end where he says, I, I did it for me. He kind yeah. of says he's doing it for... Did you just give uh, the end of Breaking Bad away? Well, <laughs> if they uh, that if you haven't seen it yet, that's your fault, not mine. No, yeah, yeah. At this point, <laughs> come on. Yeah. And part of it, I, I, you know, there's a debate between the first and the second one. Uh, the first one, Marlon Brando, is just so amazing. And the mm-hmm. second one, Al Pacino, is great, but it's interesting that a lot of it's about Brando's character, and yet he's not in it except for the flashbacks. Yeah. So it's it's like even the second one, his shadow is over everything. It's a and it was a, at least from a storytelling standpoint, a monumental risk to split your movie in half mm-hmm. and have to carry two narratives at once. And at least one of the main themes is the father's shadow is still being lived out in the yes. sins of the son, and. You could have gone 15 different ways with that. You could have done flashbacks. You could have had Pacino monologue about his father, tell stories. But he has two movies going on side by side. Mm -hmm. And they're both equally as compelling. It's just kind of amazing. 
Yes, it's good. Of course, now Coppola just makes wine, you know, and um, <laughs> yeah, lives off the money. Yeah. Uh, I did see The Godfather 3 in the theaters. I know it's generally disliked in comparison to the others. I, I do want to watch it soon. I enjoyed it in the theaters, but I didn't have the one and two in my head. So yeah. I, I'm curious to watch it. Well, I, I've never quite gotten my arms around why people hate it, though, the third one. I think in part, you know, the, the tone that Pacino portrays in the first two you mentioned how he is isolating himself, kind of pushing away. He really acts that way. Mm-hmm. He says so very little at times in key scenes. And the third one, he's, maybe it's the, the writing, maybe it's the acting. He's become Pacino that we all know, the, the kind of oh, yelling, right. you know, kind, of, kind of loud guy. He's playing himself. Yeah. I don't know. That's at least mm-hmm. one of the things I hear is they don't, they're not as drawn to that character, which is strange. When someone is screaming and ranting, they don't like it. But when he is sort of cerebrally being sort of led down the primrose path to live like his father, it's it's compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about movies, we should mention Star Wars. What'd you think? Episode seven. Episode seven. I go both ways. So on the one hand, I totally get the fact that some people, Lucas actually himself said, that the movie is too nostalgic. In some ways... People were kind of mad at Lucas because, like, shut up, the, you know. Right. You sold the movies; they're gone. Like, don't, don't, don't try to edit after the fact. I heard something about he was hanging around the set. They had to kick him off. Someone told me that. I didn't read that myself, but they actually had to escort him off. He was hanging around too much. That might be an urban legend based off of, or a riff based off the fact that he said in his latest interview that he had given a plot during the context of the selling of Lucas Films. Mm-hmm. And that they had basically taken none of it. <laughs> they basically mm-hmm. threw it away in the trash and went with their own plot. So that, I think, is it, maybe that's what it is, is that he was around, meaning trying to be influential, but they ignored him. Mm-hmm. But so on the one hand, I, I do get it. It feels it, it's almost like, I mean, J.J. Abrams did the reboot also of uh, Star Trek, mm-hmm. their wars, both Star and Trek. And um, it's, it has the same thing. There are th- uh, send-ups. There's the wink winks about back to the original series or to the original movies while also having this in case of star trek literally at a different timeline so they can tell their own story i I felt like it was a lot less of that but there was there was certainly that tone at times but i actually really liked it i thought it it drew me in i i think anyone who just thought it was so so i think probably expected it to be you know the greatest movie they've ever seen and you know you just can't live up to that hype um, but the only times that I found myself eye-rolling, was actually both at the same time, was when Hans Solo's character suddenly comes onto the scene. He just immediately comes in there. It's like, from the science side of it with space, a galaxy is a pretty large space. Even if you have some, you know, very, very complicated equipment, to, to just immediately show up on scene uh, was, was one thing. I was like, eh, it's just, the, the pace felt like very... Um, mm jumpy and then actually on that ship when you had those sort of cgi monsters running around i was just like i think that's the weakest bit of it and i'm not sure what that's doing except for maybe they need a little excitement or wanted to show han in action so i agree that's the weakest bit um well i think what they needed is to show that he's back to roguish stuff that he's not just the yeah that's what i thought i took it as but uh, i ended up seeing it three times to be honest i took the kids and then a friend doug wanted to see it and, and my mother-in-law, and I was like, sure, I'll go. So then we hopped in the car and went again. And then 
um, ended up ha- Jenny hadn't seen it, and I was like, "Sure, I'll go." So then took off again. Uh, so I, what's interesting to me watching Nerd. it repeatedly, I know. <laughs> uh, uh, watching it repeatedly, the humor is just fantastic, and even yeah. when I know the punchlines, it's still really funny. And mm-hmm. and watching it, everybody's really quiet; they're very absorbed into it. And I hear what you're saying about Han showing up. I guess I knew he had to show up at some point. And when I saw it the first time, and he, they kind of trick you. You don't know it's going to be him. They, they mm-hmm. do a bit of plot bit, but when he showed up, I did get chills just because seeing Han Solo on the Millennium Falcon is is. Oh yeah. You know, I, I'm I'm ten years old again. Yeah, yeah, it's like regaining my childhood. And, and even how old the, the original actors looked, it, it because of the way they told the story, you expect them to be sort of grandparent age. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't feel like, well, I thought they were going to look like they did in the 70s or 80s. You know, it, not, none no. of that sense. I, I think it's so smart how he linked the old to the new and really gave them space to be themselves. The old characters, mm-hmm. Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, and even Luke, who's not in it yet, he until the you know until the very end, but he overshadows the whole plot because it yeah. starts with Luke is missing, uh, yeah. and yet we have all these great new characters that they've introduced. So that mm-hmm. real hinge between the old and the new was genius. I do agree. It's a lot of nostalgia. You could almost footnote every scene because it's a pastiche of all the other Star Wars mm-hmm. movies. So you watch stuff and you're like, that's like the other bit, but it's such a mashup. Uh, the overall, the effect. I I just think J.J. Abrams is fantastic. And uh, yeah. I, I'm kind of jealous. Like in an alternate universe, I, I'm him because he's like the, the, the nerd guy that the triumph of the nerds. Like he's, he looks nerdy and he is nerdy, but he's got the culture in the palm of his hand. And that, that movie's um, two billion. I think yeah. it's approaching something, so he can do whatever he wants. Yeah, you say that the nerds' victory, uh, as, as one person said, the geeks shall inherit the earth. Yeah, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and here's the thing: I, like for example, I thought Carrie Fisher was actually really great. We expect great things out of Harrison Ford; he's such a great mm-hmm. actor. Luke didn't obviously didn't have many scenes, but Carrie, I thought she was very compelling. I mean, mm-hmm. when she was displaying really strong emotions, and I don't know why I doubted her, mm-hmm. but maybe because she hasn't been in you know, scads of movies and this kind of a thing. Same with Mark Hamill. But they just, I thought they all did very well. Mm-hmm. The the story of the father and the son, I mean, the trailer made it look like the bad guy was going to be as ominous and impenetrable as Darth Vader. But he's so weaselly and somewhat sniveling. It, it's a real interesting, you're still playing off, which is interesting, we just talked about Godfather, but it's still playing off the father and the son, that, that relationship. Yes, the, 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 at least the parent-child uh-huh. of, like, there's clearly some rupture of trust. There's clearly some leaving of what you were supposed to be as a kid of Han and Leia in this case. Mm-hmm. But the actor and the writing of it, he, he played that so well versus the prequels where you're supposed to see Darth Vader descend and you just, <laughs> the, the way it was portrayed was so weak, you couldn't believe that that was still Darth Vader that's coming out. Yeah. He's just like, no, I want my wife to live. You know, he's just going, oh. Like some other Star Wars nerds, I, I kind of don't uh, accept the canon, the canonicity yeah. or the, the canon of the episodes one, two, and three. I haven't shown them to the kids. We've watched the others, but it's, it's sort of something we're not supposed to talk about, I feel like. So, yeah, that was really handled poorly. It, it's weird because Lucas... Star Wars and Empire and Return of the Jedi are such a genius and they make mm-hmm. many top 10 lists of, of movies, but he never did anything else. It's like he, it, I always wondered if he either stole someone's work or yeah. he had the stroke of genius, but you think about the other stuff he did was, was just weird and bad. Yeah. I guess yeah. he produced Indiana Jones, but 
in terms of writing and directing? Well, the, the, the master works were always Lucas with very outlandish ideas, mm-hmm. but breathed through the lens of Spielberg's sensibilities as a director, his sense of how it ought to run in the course of a scene, those types of things. And you always felt like the two were, were great for each other. Spielberg, of course, did not need Lucas to have success over his career. But when they were partnering, it was great. And at times when Lucas is just on his own and he's just the, you know, you get the sense that he spent more time thinking about how all the ships and the aliens ought to look than if it's a believable story, mm-hmm. if the themes ring true. Mm-hmm. And that's true, actually, of the, of the original series. At least for the first two, Lucas's hands were tied. The studios wouldn't let him just do whatever he wants right. in general. They didn't believe in the first one. He didn't even direct the second one, which is considered the best of the original. Lawrence Kasdan yeah. directed yeah. And, and also with the screenplay. And the third one, I think, someone else had a hand in the screenplay. So, yeah, he really does need yeah. a... Well, the third is often when people start seeing Lucas being the, the, the mogul. He can do what he wants more. And the third one was supposed to take place actually on Chewbacca's home planet, Kashyyyk. I'd heard that. And it was yeah. supposed to be a lot darker, a lot more of, you know, the end of a any mini trilogy, real climactic. And suddenly you get, you know, little furballs and more appealing to childish or ch- not childish, childlike audiences. Mm-hmm. Real simple, palatable, you know, vanilla chocolate, simple flavors. Not nothing as complex as was hinted at in the first movies. Mm. And um, so, but it's funny. You have older kids than me because I can't. They want to see it. But I'm spending like 90% of the time explaining it to them. <laughs> they get that Darth Vader's bad, but the rest of it, you know, some of those complexities, they're not there yet. So I had to go with some, with some friends of mine. It's because you're old, man. You're old. I know. I know. I don't no, care. You're <laughs> I don't care. You're not that much older than me. Though it's <laughs> funny. Yeah. You, I mean, you're, you're a few years older than me, but we could probably go into the point of talking about how we both ended up in the same profession and uh, how we met and things. Because it's interesting. The... The path to teaching was not one I embraced early in my life. You know, as we've already seen for the first part of this podcast, I could talk about a lot of things and be reflective on it, maybe even a bit philosophical. I always had a philosophical bent, but I didn't really feel called to teaching until quite late. And it's, I don't know about you, I've, I've been teaching for about six years full time and being an administrator. How many years have you been at Pfeiffer? Uh, this is Five. Yeah, almost the same. I mean, we graduated yeah, basically the same time. I was part-time time. at first, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I felt like I only really had the kind of butterfly moment of really, I know what I want to teach. I know the points I want to make. I know the, the part of the curriculum that I serve. It was only about year four, maybe five, when I felt like I was, they talk about that um, you need a thousand hours or t- sorry, 10,000 hours. Right, to master something. Yep. And, you know, in general... <laughs> You count up teaching hours. About year four or five is probably when I'd had about 10,000 hours of teaching mm-hmm. and being in front of people and public speaking or whatever. And it suddenly was like, oh, I, I know I know my voice. I know where I am now. Uh, I know what I want to say in class, that kind of stuff. I'm not sure if that's how it was for you. I was shaking internally like a leaf the first time I had to teach a full course by myself. Yeah, there's a weird responsibility. And uh, it's, it's a lot. I mean, if you think of three 50-minute sessions, that's a lot. And there's nothing like being halfway through the class and having finished your outline. And if you're, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when you're experienced, you're like, whatever, see you later. You know, you don't really worry. But when you're starting out, you feel incredibly self-conscious. And preachers have that too. I mean, you've probably seen the, 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 the typical 
first second sermon and it's 10 minutes long and abruptly sit down <laughs> where they, they had either not rehearsed it or when they rehearsed it they went much slower or they oh, skipped I'm just a part riff it. yeah and you know the experienced pastor is like whatever but uh when you're new uh and, and I've, I've been there as well as uh, really feeling like you have to cover all the material and so there's mm. just all these mind games and yeah but a lot of it is experience learning how to riff Mm-hmm. And learning how to, to me, the real art is negotiating what the students say, trying to answer their questions while also guiding your plan, the outline, the plan for the day. So you're trying to real, you know, like we're doing here, a real synthesis kind of thing of, yeah. of, of moving together forward. And uh, the only way you can get there is experience, I think. And, and same thing with preaching. When you're in the pulpit and you realize that, that people aren't paying attention, you know, it's probably time to... Get to that final story and sit (laughs) down. I mean, there's no point. As as my mother says, no one complains about the sermon being too short. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, you you can tell when you're losing them and you need to shift or something. If you keep going, you're just, it's just not helping anybody. No, and you're right. I mean, probably the first horror that you have, or at least I had (laughs) when I was teaching, was uh, I was the back row hooligan, even when I was a real, like, overbearing, like, have to get the A, I got to get into a doctorate. All those pieces, uh, you know, even when I was really zealous about it, I was in the back row. I was just, mm-hmm. I, I probably looked like I was out of it, half asleep, laptop open, doing something else. <laughs> I remember <laughs> first time I was teaching. The student you hate. <laughs> yeah. I, well, yeah. I actually got the, at one point, adjunct that I taught in the same classroom where I would do that. And <laughs> no, that's I remember <laughs> 10 minutes in, I'm going, I can see all the way to the back. I wasn't hiding back there all those years. <laughs> and just going, oh man, what, what did I look like? But no, it's funny you mentioned, no, no, I've never met many teachers or professors that will say, yeah, it really stinks when you're 10 minutes into a 50 minute lecture and your outline's done. (laughs) But that's, that's, that's seeing how the sausage is made. It's just going, oh, um, so let's do some, do some group talk or, uh. Let's do a project. Hey, you come up to the board, talk. Yeah. No, no, you have no idea let's, what you're uh, going to do. Uh, let, let's look. Let's preview next week. I kind of do that sometimes. Like, let's look at next week's material. Now, if I were to do it, I, I mean, I find sometimes there's a little like I, I call them um, tracks, like eight tracks. Mm-hmm. I'm too young to know eight tracks, but in the sense that you know you had these things on your dashboard that you would plug into the thing to play the music mm-hmm. or cassette, whatever. Well, I have a lot of those, like things I want to say. I have a little riff on this, yeah. uh, a, a, a nuance on this that I, I don't hear enough of, that I can do more Socratic teaching when I'm not sort of just going through material. When I was first teaching, I had like few of them, none of them, like mm-hmm. maybe three, you know, the best thoughts I had to that point maybe. But by now I've got a whole lot. And I've, so I went from not feeling like I had sufficient space or voice maybe to at one point, I was riffing all over the place, going all these different tracks. Uh, if a student asked a question, I would talk extemporaneously about it for half an hour. Yeah. When, yeah. I did, when I didn't need to, I could have just answered the question shortly. And I had to pull back and to say, there was one semester in particular where I just, it was like ancient and medieval church history. I think I got to like Aquinas, you know, I was just like, well, then there's some other stuff, you know, bad Close stuff, <laughs> late middle ages, you know, <laughs> sorry, you know, but you never say sorry because you don't want them to feel like you didn't serve them. And those riffs were helpful, but it still was like, oh, sorry, guys. Was there ever a moment when you felt like you knew you wanted to study or teach theology? You know, I think it was in the back of my mind from from the beginning. 
uh, partly because my dad was an accounting professor at Wake Forest. I saw that life and, and I think I was drawn to it in some ways. And uh, so, and then being, enjoying school, enjoying high school in, in, in terms of certain classes and reading and uh, Ralph Wood and having that as an undergrad. I, you know, I didn't know at the time, but I think it was kind of latent in the back of my mind that I mm. might, I would get there eventually. I think I knew I wanted to do a PhD and try out the classroom. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm usually a five-year plan kind of guy. Like, I'm going to take this step and then see what happens type thing. Yeah. Uh, so well, it I, sounds like you're the product of good teachers and sort of yeah. models of it. Yeah. But it's interesting you said, I wanted to try out the class. Like, the classroom was at least the central part of that vision that you wanted to do. Because mm-hmm. I sometimes hear people say, well, I want to do a doctorate. And if you start asking them why, it's not all that common, but you, you get the sense of, well, I want to be quasi-famous and write books. And you know, they want to be an, an author. Mm-hmm. And, and have respect. It depends on the person. But if, I, if they trust me and I trust them, I'll say, look, you don't actually, can, you can't really make a lot of living unless you know, you're writing more popular level things. Scholarly books don't make you a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you're going after this to be a scholar, well, there's lots of people who can be scholarly mm-hmm. without this work. So an exercise I do with people is I say, what do you want to be? If you want to teach, you, you have to do the things, the degrees, that they won't let you teach unless you have them. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes, not to make it too pragmatic, but that's kind of what happened to me, I think, is I had probably early on, yeah, so high school, early college, I was, I was into philosophy and things. And, but it was more kind of a self, it wasn't self-aggrandizing, I was too shy about it, but this kind of self-fulfillment sense of, I just like reading things. I like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, what does Freud say? Oh, that's interesting. Or uh, Plato on this, and, or Calvin on this. I was just curious, I guess. And you, you kind of kind of leads you down that path of continuing to study. Yeah, and then later it was like, oh, I actually think I might teach. It was, it, when I hit the word teach, when that popped in my head, that's when I was like, oh, okay, okay, I get it now. Because mm-hmm. then I had the, the sort of teleological endpoint, and I could work backwards. Okay, I need to do a master's. I need to work hard there to have racked letters to go on, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But then I had an insight. But What did you think you'd do after college? Like when you graduated from college, where were you, what were you thinking? I had no idea. Yeah. Actually, I, I don't <laughs> think I, I did either. Yeah, most of us probably wouldn't. But in fact, I think the issue for me was I only had one category of serving the kingdom, which is pastor mm-hmm. or youth director, maybe as a subset of that. I didn't have a, a sort of wider variety of ways that you can engage in. And in, in this, so an analogy I use a lot is, you know, teachers, we're not on the front lines like pastors and people in, in active ministry. You know, you got somebody coming into, their, into your office because their husband died in a car crash. You know, that's, that's, that's the earthy front lines. But I always say the teachers are on the back lines or in the boot camps that like we have to help them be prepared for what they're, they're going to see. So we're still serving. We're, it's all the same struggle. It's all the same mission and call. But in my case, I never, at a, as a young man, had a category for teacher, which is funny because most of church history, they do. It, they have those categories. But American, you know, the way it kind of mashes up things, American Christianity, it tends to say pastor evangelist only mm-hmm. or some, some subset of those. And so once I kind of started to see that you can, it wasn't so much an intellectual problem. It wasn't that I had to come to terms with loving God with my mind or something stupid like that. But rather it was more, oh, there's a different calling. I just had, had no category for it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You, did, and did you say that stupid like that? Why do you say that? Or you mean corny? Is that what you mean? Cor- yeah, corny. I got there you, you go. Gotcha. Thank you. Thank you. No. It surprised me. 
Well, in the sense that no one told me that it was wrong to think even about really hard things and complex things. Uh-huh. And I didn't have a lot of bad examples in my life of people sitting around thinking these abstract thoughts and not loving anyone. Right. Uh, I had, you know, good people in my life all throughout. So when it came to this idea that I had this curious desire to read lots of things that I knew no one else really cared about, I didn't feel guilty inherently. So yeah, corny. Yeah, that, that's all I meant. Gotcha. Was, Did you grow up Presbyterian? Do you think? No. Okay. No, I wasn't Presbyterian. Uh, my parents were charismatic. Uh, they were Assemblies of God. Mm-hmm. I was actually baptized Assemblies of God in Orlando. And by Mickey. Was it Mickey Mouse? Yeah, Mickey Mouse and the Assemblies of God. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they, they, they moved it. around Central Florida a lot. And we ended up in a very small town, about 10,000 people in Central Florida, south of Orlando. And I think the way my mom described it was there was no charismatic church that they really felt comfortable in. I think there was only like one or two at most mm-hmm. in that city. If not, in fact, I almost think there wasn't any for a while. And so my mom's and dad's way of living it out was they just looked for a church that was, as they would say, alive, energetic. You know, they had young kids. And the two big ones in the block at the time were a Baptist church and a ARP Presbyterian church. So we ended up at the ARP one. They had a great youth group. And my mm-hmm. uh, later, later I found out it was entirely alien to my parents' Christian experience. They were really into the Assemblies of God and Charismatic Movement. And so, suddenly you're in pews and robes and, you know, this. They were really stepping out. Yeah. And so. How old were you again? When you... That was probably fourth or fifth grade when we moved okay. to that city and joined that church. But I wasn't a Christian until very, like, the last year of high school. So I wouldn't say a lot of it necessarily seeped into the bloodstream. So I wasn't enculturated mm-hmm. as a Christian in that way. And looking back is actually one of those curious things of life. The senior pastor, I believe, well, the senior pastor's wife, so I teach at Gordon Connell, of course, the senior pastor's wife is the, the current board, uh, chair of our board of trustees for Gordon Connell. That was his sister. It was hmm. my pastor's wife. Hmm. And the youth pastor was a Gordon Conwell alum. I had no idea what these things were, of course. But mm-hmm. uh, I bumped into my, my old youth pastor, and he's like, you teach for my alma mater? Because <laughs> he'd only known the crazy me. And he's like, oh, that's, that's interesting. You know, and he, he was very appreciative. I'm betting on that one. Yeah. So anyway, I wasn't enculturated as anything. And, and then I went off to Sanford, which is a predominantly Baptist school. Mm-hmm. Then I spent a year with at the University of Munster with Lutherans. Mm-hmm. Went to RTS, you know. Presbyterian, Calvinistic. They went to England and studied the English Reformation. I got this. And that's where we met. And I think I remember when I first met you, it was like the summer through our mutual friend, Simeon. And um, Who? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, did you guys uh, know each other Casey's already? Or how had you, had you met through Tyndale? Simeon? Uh, uh, yeah, because Simeon's the, the bond between us that we met. No, uh, it was a friend of a friend. So a friend I knew at seminary, he was at Nottingham for a while mm-hmm. with Milbank. And he had passed through Tyndall House and met Simeon. And when I was accepted into Cambridge and knew I was going to live at Tyndall House, he connected us. And Simeon had grown up in Birmingham, and his, his dad was there at the Cathedral of the Advent. Mm-hmm. And he had taught a bit at Beeson. My brother went to Beeson. There was uh, two degrees of separation, so we, we immediately... I was thinking of that, the whole seven degrees of separation, Kevin Bacon... For Simeon, it's like two. Everybody yeah, in the world so yeah. has two degrees of separation. Yeah. From Simeon. He's, yeah. He is, he's, he's the Baconator. Yeah. I think we met, was it that pub there, the Red Bull or something? Or yeah, somehow it was I like a so. lunch after church. They had those roasts. And I think I remember right. Simeon wanted, like, there was a bunch of people there. 
and meeting you in Charlotte and you guys yeah. were starting out because I think I was a year ahead. But yeah, that's right. You were, and you weren't studying at Tinder House yet. But I, for me, it was with Simeon. We, we always kept saying, you know, we're always so stressed. We're always trying to be perfect with our advisors. We really hope we have we meet a lot of people here that are just normal, mm-hmm. where we don't have to talk shop per se and right. kind of one up each other. And Simeon was always good at you know bringing that that gang of folks around. I remember. Um, you know, just being so stressed out and having no idea what I was doing. The other thing for me, though, was I was the only historical theology guy. I was mm. the only guy working in history. Mm-hmm. So I, I had no tribe. Yes. Like, I yeah. was like, hey, guys, you know, oh, it's just me. You know, because it was <laughs> so, the Bible people and then it was the theology people. Well, and the Bible people uh, obviously are close friends, but I've, I immediately felt like the dogmatics guys uh, and gals were the people that I would have a lot of good conversations with. And I, I actually learned a lot because people were studying things that, I didn't know much about. In your case, literature and faith had only dabbled in it. Others, you know, things like modern systematics, whatever. And so I became the the adopted kid to the dogmatics gang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a uh, you know, it, Cambridge is so interesting. And I, even after living there three years, I don't know that I fully understand it. But <laughs> right. but uh, you know, here you would really be in a certain program. There you you weren't. You were attached with a supervisor, and yeah. you had a field of study that. I guess admissions was comfortable with and your advisor, but once your supervisor, but there, there's no committee and there's no classes and there's no, um, there's nothing. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing. It's you, like, you, you just have could to get away something. with not talking with anyone, not meeting with anyone, just sitting in a library and going crazy. Yeah. Yeah. The, the goal is to produce original scholarship and kind of preparing you for a life of that. And it's not to be, have a comprehensive education where you've, taken all these classes, they kind of assume yeah. you've done that or you'll figure it out later, you'll read it. They just want you to produce something. And uh, Yeah. It took me a couple of years to, to defrost. I had seized up by the end. It was such mm-hmm. a, you know, in an American system, you get grades. You know, if you're doing, what's my GPA? That's how you measure if you're in or out, if you're failing out, whatever. You got three years of nothing. I mean, you have the, the one year, like, okay, you're good. You can stay uh, meeting with a couple of faculty members. <laughs> right. But you're going... Right. I don't know if this is world-class or the dumbest thing anyone has ever said on the subject. <laughs> um, you have no idea. Right. And that stress isn't necessarily alleviated when you talk to you know, your neighbor or friend, yes. uh, someone else in the program, because they're feeling it too. So you all, like, at its worst, you start comparing yourself, which doesn't, it's always apples and oranges. Someone is in a different, right. entirely different field. The, this is, though, back to the teaching piece. I'm usually very cautious when someone says doctorate. I say, look, no one in their right mind should want to go through three years of uncertainty of as to whether or not they're going to get through and then still not necessarily be sure if they're going to get a job for the sake of a hobby. You, yes, yeah. you got to feel like you want to teach, like you want to be with students. You want to do this for real. What you want to do, you need the doctorate to finish, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just hazing. <laughs> it felt like at some point. <laughs> right. Uh, or as uh, one of the professors said to me, he said, the doctor does this benevolent neglect. We're going to neglect you and, you know, that but that's weird. in the end, it'll be good for you kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting because really anybody can produce books. And, and, and yeah. Jenny and I've had this discussion, my wife, Jenny, that um, you could sit there now and write out the great American novel or write a, a study of, of Aquinas or whatever. And if it's, I mean, it'll be harder without the degrees in terms of you won't have the, they do want to know about your background, but if it's good, it can get published. So why do you need the degree? 
But part of mm -hmm. it, I think, is you're paying for the atmosphere, that when you're there and you have the libraries and other people working and you're going to these lectures and, and seminars, like it, because once you're out of it, you realize how hard it is to get yourself to work. So someone yeah, like sure. J.K. Rowling, Rowling uh, with Harry Potter, I mean, the, the power of sitting there and writing out novels at night when your kids are sleeping, that that to me takes a tremendous character yeah. and will yeah. because I, I'm much too lazy for that. But if you stick me with a bunch of other people and like you said, we're all kind of anxiously trying to complete and no one knows what they're doing, um, the only real criterion we have is how many words did you write that day but <laughs> or how many words did you read or yeah. how many words did you read and it doesn't matter it's so much are the words good and you know like we which really, is horrible that's it, the worst it's so like, weird and i tell people that that writing a thesis dissertation is, is something that you've never done before and will never do again you're gonna write eighty thousand words mm -hmm. and even publishers don't really want that they want a manuscript that's more general audience Right. So you're never going to produce something that specific and you've never done it before. You'll never do it again, but you've got to do it now and, you know, get back to us when you're ready to turn something in. It's kind of, that's right. That's right. Never like neglect. So, uh, well, and there's bizarre. a lot of complaints out there about the PhD run, the, the, the degree mills and not enough jobs and the, the so-called crisis of higher education, though I have, haven't seen any schools really close down. <laughs> they're all, I mean, they're, they're bone on bone sometimes in their budgets, but some have, of course, but, you get this sense of we're not helping people think enough about their calling. Mm -hmm. We're not saying, why would you do this? And, you know, I've talked with the students over the years. They say, well, I want to teach. And I say, okay, where? Mm -hmm. Would you be happy teaching at a classical Christian school, K through 12? Would you be happy at a smaller college or a community college? Do you only see yourself as teaching at a place that, you know, tenure, that whole thing? And it's interesting because when they start thinking about that, one, they get off the question of the esoteric scholarship piece and they start going, oh, yeah, what would I be happy with? Mm -hmm. But on the far side of it, those who say, okay, I think I want to teach. I want to, I've had a student once say, I want to do what you do. I want to be in front of seminary students or Bible college or Christian university students talking about important things. And then that was great because I said, all right, let's talk about the hiring process. You got one job opening and you're going to have 100, 200 applicants. So you got to try to really stand out to get the interviews to be hired, those types of things. And you get the sense that people don't always get that information along the way. It's just do a doctorate anywhere yeah. fast. And I was that way. I thought, oh, I can find something. Yeah. Oh, there's fine. <laughs> and I think we're not discipling our students well enough, which is the craft of the teacher. So I think that's the place where some real reflection needs to happen a little bit more. It's okay to help them work out of the idea that they want to be a scholar if they don't feel called to be a teacher. Because otherwise, why take on the debt? Why mm -hmm. take on the time? And not just money debt, but you know, you're going to school until you're early, mid-30s sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's a long time. But if it's, if it's the only path to do what you feel called to do, then it's actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. And there's a bit of escapism when you said that sort of master, how would you put it, master of esoteric, that, that we always think of the grass as greener and you sort of think, oh, well, if I do this, then I'll you know, my life will be so easy. It's kind of like if I join right. that gym or if I, but, but the truth is every job is challenging and, and really not what you think it's going to be. So a lot of people mm. think pastors sit around and people yeah. kind of wander through. one day a week. One day a week yeah. and people wander through for counseling and then they make them feel better and then they kind of bang out a sermon and then you're done and they don't realize that you're working with insurance agents and you're working with the air mm -hmm. conditioning broken and you're dealing with facilities or, or, personnel or, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's broken people that are, you know, marriages are on the rocks. They come to yeah. you. I mean, yeah. 
all hours of the night and 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 political struggles with maybe the people in music versus whatever the the women's group over the parlor or something so the sound uh, team raising up a kingdom against you <laughs> <laughs> that's right is my mic on hello hello uh, uh, so you know it's just funny or they how leave we... it on when you're singing <laughs> turn your volume up <laughs> every rose has its thorn <laughs> wait that's not even a hymn yeah, uh, yeah, so there's a wish fulfillment and there is part of that, the PhD is that, wow, when I do that, I'll have respect and can get a job and I can be uh, this sort of master of something. And, and you, there is a little truth to that in some ways. I mean, you, there, it is a respected profession, but it also means that there's always a, a, a pecking order. There's always yeah. a totem pole and, and you're going to graduate and see other people do things or see other jobs that you're not going to get. And you're going to slog through lots of things and, and you're going to be in a lot of committee meetings. So it, it's not a sort of show up and chat. It's like youth, youth ministry kind of idea. Yeah. I'll just play with the kids and then go home. It's like, well, yeah. It's not well, and I, I've said this before, you know, you see some people in the, in the, whether it's professor or whatever, the, the higher education teaching ranks, and they just seem bitter and they're kind of taking it out on students. Mm-hmm. I sometimes wonder, this is yeah. just a thought that always pops in. Did, did they have some th- thought that this would be so fulfilling mm-hmm. that they would have instant respect and they would feel it, yes. internalize it, and just, just sort of drift off into nirvana? And maybe not having experienced that and realizing that, not that they didn't have a call, but that it's, it wasn't what they expected. Then the people that you're called to, the students, become mm-hmm. the obstacle to your happiness. Yes. And it becomes very frustrating for some folks. It, it could be other things, of course. But I sometimes always wonder, like, what, what did you think this job was? Right. You, yeah, you're going to be hanging out with students. Like, this is what you're here for. Yeah. They pay your salary, by the way. That's right. <laughs> they pay for this. <laughs> you know, this is a service. And so wrapped up in that, I think, is this idea of, I don't think we talk enough about calling, at least in my biography, this is where, probably why I'm on it. We don't give them enough options. We don't, one, we want them to know sooner than they probably should what they feel called to yes, do. Yes, I think so. And then on the other hand, we don't give them more options. It's just, you know, I joke with my, my kids, my daughter, she loves my sarcasm at this point. I say, honey, you can be whatever you want. What, whatever kind of doctor you want to be, you, you can be. <laughs> and she laughs because um, she knows I've told her, look, there's thousands of things that you could be called to do. And I wasn't necessarily told that. I, I just think it ha- it's not part of our normal conversations. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, and, and we do ask students way too early. They're wanting it their freshman year, you know, what do you want to major in? What do you want to be? And I mean, gosh, they're 18, 17. Yeah. Um, and, and whatever, and you ask any adult, you say, are you doing what you thought you'd do when you're 18? No, most people change careers and jobs and, and, and one thing leads to another. And so it's impossible in some ways. So uh, they do need to pick a major and they do need to figure out something, but asking yeah. kids to figure out their lives when their brains aren't fully formed, so in terms of that whole and your brain's not done till you're 22, 23. It's kind of bizarre to me and stressful. I guess partly and, I don't. And I, isn't it part of the job of the teacher to help, to be part of the yes. process? Instead, we sometimes put ourselves in opposition to it, I think. Right, right. And, and you see those professors that want people to be like them. They want them to major or go into their field. And that's always, to me, very sad because I don't need to fulfill my ego through my students. Yeah. Right. I'm not looking for many me's. And it's clear to anyone who knows us, we're not the paragons of virtue here. <laughs> this is just more of a reflection on, mm-hmm. you know, we got years, Lord willing, and decades ahead of us. What could students benefit from hearing more of? Mm-hmm. And I, I do think one of those pieces is, is this type of thing. Well, that's a good place to stop, I think. 
more things to talk about there, but we can pick those up in later conversations.